Hello and welcome to the Painting Podcast, art history from a painter's perspective. This week we're going to be diving into the work of Albrecht Altdorfer, a giant of the German Renaissance. Every week on the podcast we take a look at the life and work of one artist. And currently I've been looking at a lot of painters who are part of the Danube School of Painting. And this consists of a group of German painters uh, working primarily in the 16th century. And you can find a bunch of images that I've gathered together from these painters on our Instagram page, which is Painting Course. So just search for Painting Course on Instagram, one word, and you'll be able to look at a lot of the images that I'm speaking about right here in this podcast. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, you can head over to patreon.com backslash painting course. And for a $10 monthly donation, you get a hand painted postcard sent with me with some beautiful inspirational messages coming from Prague. And uh, for $15 membership there, I will critique some of your work and give you some constructive criticism on how to improve your painting. So before we get into it, I just wanted to set the scene a little bit and talk about the other Albrecht in the room, so to speak. And that, of course, is Albrecht Dürer, who would be uh, the most well-known artist to come out of the German Renaissance. And, um, of course, we can't think about Albrecht Aldorfer without mentioning Albrecht Dürer as well. A few uh, interesting things about the two. They did work during the same time. Uh, Altdorfer was born nine years after Albrecht Dürer was born. Altdorfer in 1480 and Dürer in 1471. Now, when we think of the Renaissance, generally people associate this with Italy. And that's understandable because that's where a lot of it started. And um, there's even, you know, predecessors to the Italian Renaissance, which we can see in France at the end of the 14th century as well. So we can go down this rabbit hole as long as we want to. But generally, we think of the, the high Renaissance painters of Italy, people like Leonardo da Vinci, Donatello, you know, all the rest of the Ninja Turtles. And these, these painters simply came a little bit before in terms of how they, they modeled the form and used light and used perspective and these sort of things. Da Vinci would have been born in 1452, which is, you know, 30 years before Altdorfer would be born. And of course, Montaigne would, would come before Da Vinci as well, I think around 1420s or something like that. So the German Renaissance deals with these subjects and a lot of the the ways that painting evolved in Italy at that time, just in terms of composition and lighting a subject and uh, using perspective, including atmos atmospheric perspective to see things, you know, going back farther in space. And it took a lot of these fundamentals that were breakthroughs in Italy and began to apply them in Germany as well. So it's important to remember that during this time, artists were almost exclusively running workshops. And really think about what exactly a workshop is and, and how it differs from what we have today, uh, the way we learn art. Back then, a lot of people would have a workshop, and that would be similar to 
you know, somebody who was making cabinets, for instance, or somebody who was making hats or somebody who was a goldsmith or something like that as well. So the way we think about learning art has really changed. And the way that a, an artist would maintain a studio has changed as well. I really like the the workshop model and the studio based model where a studio has is is almost like a storefront and it's integrated within the community itself and this is how uh, a lot of these different type of trades operated for hundreds and hundreds of years throughout all of Europe uh Incidentally, I also have a studio here in Prague that is a storefront studio that I teach individual lessons out of through my artist mentorship program there. So I'm also interested in teaching in this way. That's why I've been digging into what it means to be an apprentice, what it means to study in this way, and all sorts of uh, these sorts of things. So when we think about a workshop, Altdorfer ran a workshop. Elbrecht Durer ran a workshop, and it's not really a coincidence that Elbrecht Durer's dad and Elbrecht Altdorfer's dad were both artists, and uh, Durer's dad was a goldsmith, for instance. So in that sense, dealing with gold, you have to deal with different types of chemicals, and the printing process is also becoming a burgeoning field in Germany at the time, and the Germans are basically the best at it, at printmaking. And, but it's also a science in a way. You have to use acid on a, a copper plate at a certain way uh, and, you know, burnish it and all this sort of stuff. I, I, I was terrible at litho and uh, all these different types of printmaking. I, I prefer screen printing, but there's a certain magic about it. Right, So I think there's an approach to printmaking itself that's important to think about when we think about artists like Albrecht Altdorfer, for instance, as well. It's also not a coincidence that during the same time, alchemy is beginning to become something that's investigated more and more as well. And there's a great book by James Elkins called What Painting Is that investigates the studio as an alchemist's lair. It's a space where there's different chemicals and pigments and all these sorts of things. And you're making gold, essentially. You're making a painting out of these very simple, archaic materials, in a sense. So when we think about Altdorfer, we can think about an approach to painting, which is really methodical and rational and, and based on a, a production mode of painting. Oftentimes now we think of painting as being this sort of mystical experience that happens in, a, in an artist's studio where paint is flying around and incense is burning and there's a naked person on a couch somewhere. Um, but in reality, a lot of these painters would construct paintings in an extremely rational way and they would be taught this is the right way to paint and this is the wrong way to paint. Now we don't even think that think of that happening much in in many art schools today where an instructor would tell their student you're painting wrong. And a lot of times students I think want to hear that they are painting wrong. Those colors look awful together. Instead, it's, oh, that's interesting. Why, why did you put those two? Oh, that, oh yeah, you know, violet and yellow is really a, a strong statement, you know? Um, but instead, back then, they're being taught, this is how you make stuff. Altdorfer's dad 
was a miniaturist. Now we think about what's the point of of making something really, really little. It's to these. He was making things um, the size of a postage stamp, and then Altdorfer later on would go on to become part of this group called the Little Masters, and it it sounds kind of ridiculous at first like little masters that it sounds when I first heard of it, I thought like, Oh, you're like a baby Da Vinci or something, but it, it really means that they made miniatures. And so he kind of went on to make the same sort of paintings that his dad did, but he would make them on the size of a, a postage stamp. And these were engravings that he would do, not paintings, but he would make these super tiny little engravings. And he started this group called the little masters. And there was other artists involved that would also make these little miniature postage stamp sized engravings as well. And when you think about that, imagine getting that as an assignment and somebody says, make, make a drawing the size of a postage stamp. You might think, okay, I'm going to make a, a penguin, on an iceberg, right? Or something like that. Altdorfer, they went straight for the most complicated historical scenes imaginable. I mean, it's just completely ridiculous. So they'll have like, you know, one of the prints is called The Labors of Hercules, right? So we've got centaurs and, you know, battle scenes and all this sort of stuff and animals and it, you know, complicated, figurative, multifigural compositions. And this is a postage stamp, right? So there's kind of a showing off of somebody's skills, I think, that would be associated with making something extremely small. But it also has, a, you know, it enables a different interaction with the viewer as well, because simply when something's so little, you, you have to literally get up closer to it. And when you get up closer to something like that, I think it blocks off a lot of the peripheral vision that, you know, you see when you look at a big painting on a wall, right? So you come in and you see Guernica on the wall, it's big, and you have to look at it in that way, and you have to walk around it, and that's part of the whole thing. But when you're looking at a miniature, it's a it's a completely different experience. So I think that was a really cool thing. Like right off the bat, Altdorfer's like, I'm going to make stuff really little. That's what his dad did, you know, um, make miniatures. But then he was like, I'm going to make something really little, but I'm going to make it really, really complicated as well. Now, when we're talking about Altdorfer, we have to mention the power of the landscape itself. It's impossible to disconnect the two. He's often referred to as being the first landscape painter. So he came from Regensburg, and that's in Bavaria, Germany. And this, this is a place that has a lot of really lush forests. It's not too far. You could get to the ocean. Um, it's not, you know, totally landlocked in that sense, but it's a really beautiful mountainous area. And typical of a lot of the German paintings we see, we see a lot of overflowing of nature itself. And I think this is a, a really important element when we're looking at Altdorfer's work, work. We can see that that the, the plants in his paintings are kind of growing with some sort of power that's overtaking the subjects themselves. Now, he's, he's generally doing, you know, biblical-themed works, but by placing them in these fantastic landscapes, the landscapes 
kind of make them more human. They make them more rational in a way. And there's a certain grittiness and griminess about these paintings that I just can't help but but really like. And I think this is, you know, one difference between a lot of the German Renaissance painting and a lot of the Italian Renaissance paintings that we see is that in a lot of the, the German Renaissance works or just Altdorfer's works, for instance, we see this sort of guttural forest life, right? And this is a concept that isn't totally foreign to... Uh, a lot of German thought. And it it made me think of a woman named Hildegard Bingen, who was a Christian nun and mystic, German as well. And she wrote extensively about the idea of veriditas. And we can also, you know, when we think of veriditas, we think of, she she used it to explain the power of plants to put forth leaves and fruit, as well in the sense of an analogous intrinsic power of human beings to grow and heal as well. Now, when we look at the word veriditas, we can also just see the word viridian as well, which painters, of course, will know as just meaning green. And this concept of veriditas, because it is in, you know, she was a nun, she was a Christian mystic, this idea of nature being part of God's creation and having that power of God within it, I think is something that is very important within Altdorfer's work as well. Now, when I was looking into Regensburg, the, the city, it's, it still exists. It's 150,000 people. <laughs> I'm sure if anybody's listening in Regensburg, they're like, oh yeah, I'm glad you think we still exist. Um, but it, it's still a, you know, a pretty large sized city in Germany currently. And I even looked up some Airbnbs in the region and I found for about two, two weeks, you could stay there for about two weeks for about $600 in Regensburg. And so if you really wanted to see where landscape painting began, you can just go to Regensburg, I don't know, rent a car, drive around, and give yourself a, a workshop during these sort of times. You know, just use that as your own getaway into learning about painting and learning about landscape painting and this sort of stuff. Go on your own tour, do your own research, and just Airbnb it. Of course, now with coronavirus shutting everything down, makes travel pretty difficult, but we're going to get through this. We've been through a pandemic before as a species, 100 years ago, actually, and came around on the other side of it. And if there's one thing about humanity in general, it's that often we think the world is about to end in our lifetimes. Of course, this is what Revelations, an entire book of the Bible, is devoted to. So all the doom and gloom that you're feeling is nothing new. And in a year, you're going to be painting in Germany, looking at the Danube River. So getting back into Albrecht Altdorfer, he would be using this same landscape in the Danube Valley. And this would be taking a lot from the you know, the, the landscape is big and overpowering the subjects within it. He believed that the human figure wasn't, you know, supposed to disrupt its surroundings. And he also made the landscape a dominant theme within the composition itself. So when we 
when we look at a painting like, you know, um, Christ taking leave of his mother, he painted that around 1520. We can see that, you know, Christ and Mary and, you know, the disciples and all this, those are the most important subjects of the painting, but there's a giant tree smack dab straight in the, in the center of the painting as well. So if we're thinking about that tree, that tree behind Jesus that Altdorfer painted, that's really the essence of his contribution and the German Renaissance's contribution to painting and certainly paintings of biblical subjects. It's that tree. And I know a little bit about what was happening in Germany at that time. 1517, Martin Luther would nail his theses onto uh, his theses, um, nail them onto a, a church door. And of course, this was going against the Catholic dominance of the region. But I wanted to know a little bit more about what was happening at that time. And my dad knows a lot about this sort of subject. So I gave him a call and I asked him if he wanted to talk about Altdorfer's paintings. And he was ready immediately. And uh, this was the conversation which then transpired. Wonderful. Yes. What was what was going on in this time, like within Christianity? What was the big change in thinking in Germany at that time? One would be, you know, part of that Renaissance world is the idea that the world that we live in actually, and you know, in nature and the, just the world is is interesting and wonderful in itself so it's not just heaven and the divine mysteries that matter but the the world that we our world is is important and that obviously affected artists and and uh, poets and and the like and uh but that's going to be part of that radical renaissance movement is my understanding and how that's going to affect Catholicism and uh, let's say the Protestantism that's coming out exactly at this same time in Germany. I mean, that would be something that I would love to see some, some scholar or church history and talking about it. The second point I want to make is, is uh, in that same region was this wonderful theologian, mystic Hildegard of Bingen, who's living in that region of Bingen. Yeah. And she has this idea that the world of nature and the world of spirit have, are connected. And she uses her concept of veriditas, of veridity to try to articulate that the same force that gives us divine revelations of God are, is the same force that uh, makes the leaves green and and life and makes people want to reproduce and and all that stuff. Right. So I just making these two points is okay. the disc, the idea that the world that we actually live in is wonderful and and worth thinking about. And then I, that got me thinking about those at those pictures that Altdorfer did of spruce trees and a willow tree and I thought and I, I was curious well, what is this guy doing thinking 
you know, I think I'll draw this spruce tree. And he's obviously trying to looking at it and like a real, you know, somebody in an, in your drawing class would say, let's look at the actual tree rather than just make up one. What would, what would be becoming before and what changed, I guess, in Germany at, at the turn of the 16th century? Well, the Protestant Refor you know, Reformation, I mean, Martin Luther is going to nail his 95 complaints or uh, statement thesis on the wall of a church in 1517 in Wittenberg. And um, so obviously that dominant, that, Catholic dominance of Europe is is going to be challenged. It's been challenged before, but in big, big time. And I am wondering to what extent is the landscape painting a part of that process? And, you know, as I was looking at those paintings of Aldorf, the religious subjects, that here you have the typical religious subject, Jesus is crucified or resurrected, all these things. And, but there's a, a nice river behind there or a great big tree. So this idea that we're going to show, we're still going to do religious paint subjects, like biblical subjects, and yet we're, we're going to let that natural world take more and more prominence in the picture. That's, that's kind of amazing. And you and I talked about the way artists depict biblical scenes, for example. We yeah. had a whole discussion on that. Right. And now these, the landscape, meaning the tree, the river, the hill, is emerging. I think that's, yeah, or, well, just a painting of any kind. I'm just, here's, a, here's a drawing of a, I was impressed with, uh, what, as I was looking at some of Aldorfer's, uh, I think they're aquatints or whatever that is, that uh, there were, spruce trees it was so specifically and then it was a willow tree not only is it interest in in, a, in trees but it's taking seriously that this tree a spruce tree looks different than an elm tree a willow tree and that kind of focusing on the species detail is going to unfold in science obviously but also at the same time, I think, you know, this would be my little in, inter, uh, contribution to it with Hildegard's concept of veriditas, this natural the world of nature. So the nature, natural world is creating a spruce tree, which is different than, than a pine tree, for example. That's pretty, and then we're going to have all these scientists researching, looking for different species of things, different kinds of butterflies. Da Vinci, of course, would have been into like naming plants and... Really? Okay. Drawing yeah. water and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, but the very fact that said, hey, this butterfly is designed different than that. So it's not just an abstract butterfly, mm -hmm. it's a genius. And so then eventually by the 19th century, you get to Charles Darwin with his book, the origin of species, like, wow, this creative process is just astounding. It doesn't just make a bird, but it makes these thousands of different, it's called, and our word for it is biodiversity. We love that. Or, you know, there's right. a, 
we're challenged with how to celebrate the biodiversity and to protect it and to reflect on what does it mean? And then there are human beings for that. And there's Altdorfer, obviously, working with that in the 16th century. I love that. And then you have someone like uh, Galileo, who's going to get in trouble, who actually is interested in the sky, the heavens, the stars. And then he says, I th- I want to, I'm going to look at the moon. We know the moon is this wonderful thing. But then he has a telescope where you've got lenses. And he says, I'm going to look at, well, what does it actually look like up there? Oh, there are these things that look like volcanoes or craters. And I mean, that created a whole controversy to look carefully at the natural world through through a telescope. And then in Holland, just about a little later than this, there's this guy, Mr. Lewinhook, who's going to say, I'm going to use the special lens to look at tiny things. I'll take a drop of water and, oh my God, I'm looking in there. There are bugs in there. <laughs> that, that, that willingness to look closely is a wonderful, it's a kind of celebration of nature. And I would point out that it also has something to do with the concept of perception, of looking at things. Hmm. So we have Merleau-Ponty, as you know, writing his book on the phenomenology of perception. Not only what does a tree look like, but what does it, what does it mean that human beings will actually look at a tree? I love that. Uh, let, me, let me give you another, uh, another term that I, think it, that I think about a lot lately. I think it's in the 1600s, a little bit later here, at the same time as the, that microscope, that Spinoza, this great philosopher, has this concept of the Latin term, I think it's Spinoza, I'm not an expert on, certainly on this, uh, of it, the Latin term is natura naturans, nature naturing. I think that's such a beautiful concept that Nature, for example, he didn't have a concept of evolution yet then, but nature was was causing a pine tree to emerge. Nature was causing a spruce tree. Nature was causing, you know, different all the things that we that happen in nature. And let's say hurricanes. Right now, nature is doing something that scares us, like creates a special kind of virus. So we human beings have to try to protect ourselves from it. And, but nature created, uh, is making some special hurricanes. Nature is, so this whole idea, natura naturans, nature naturing, which is different than saying God makes the hurricanes or God makes the fire, but it's nature naturing. I, I love that. Would there be a way? I love a lot of things. How does how does like reforms in Christianity fit into this idea of nature naturing? Like what well, what is the the things that Luther puts on that he he nails into the church door? Do, do they talk about nature? I don't think he says anything about that, and that's why there's a if you're going to take Christian Christian theology and nature. I mean, that's obviously something that would 
take a lot of time. But Hildegard, that's why Hildegard lived, you know, as a medieval monk, a nun, is really, she becomes so important today for people. That's why she's so popular, is this idea that what nature is doing is worth is worth adoring and being amazed at and and the idea that it nature's doing not only is nature making trees and making the leaves green but it is causing you and me to think about these things we have brains who are you know we're alive and we can think about them that's wonderful and it only you know just because Altdorfer lived in a very Christian culture, and I don't know how he felt about it, but um, how he saw it theologically or, or not is something I wouldn't have the, the uh, competence to, to talk about. His, his partner, or his, this Albrecht Dürer, is certainly a great artist, but boy, is he involved with religious subject matter and um, they really seem different when it comes to this whole business of paying attention to a kind of ragged looking spruce tree that might be partly dead even, but only now in the 20th, 19th or what's 20th and the 21st century is Christianity trying to develop some kind of real deep spirituality of the natural world. And wouldn't they, wouldn't Calvinism be an important aspect to that? Well, Calvinists are going to be, right, Calvin is a big giant, but again, when it comes to the natural world, they're so involved with sin and redemption and and, uh, saving yourself from hell and who's saved and who's not saved and who has authority in the church and the like. Uh, Boy, that, that world of nature I'm not sure what, what, what role it played. It's the artist, it seems to me, the artist who's going to take that role. And when you get to uh, right. and then, all these artists who want to paint pictures of mountains and hills and all this, and trees and water and floods and Turner painting oceans and, and the like. And this was all part of the group of artists called the Danube School of Painters. Yes. So that would all be painting this kind of same area. Yeah, I love that idea that when I, again, I don't know that much about Altdorfer's life, but when I read that line that he took this boat trip down the Danube and then he went to, I think, Switzerland, what is now Switzerland or something, and saw the Alps, that seems like such a, well, it's modern in the sense of Renaissance and thing and uh, this idea that I, I I live in a certain place and I can look oh this is the Danube River and it looks like this and and the question I think it would raise for people in 2020 an artist would be well how do you feel about the Danube in 2020 or the Voltava or the where I live the Missouri River of the of North America what does it mean to do a landscape? or to even look at the natural world in our time.
but we've lived through 400 or so years of people making pretty landscapes and hills and mountains. And when I go on our public television and I see the artist teaching us how to, you know, doing a little lesson in painting, right. and then he, and then he can make, he makes a mountain, then he makes a tree and maybe makes some water and there's reflecting. It looks nice, but what, is, how do, what is the role of the artist today? When it comes to depicting sky or clouds, what are we doing? I think it's, you know, with climate change and the challenges to biodiversity. So what does it mean to, I'm not sure the word mean is the right one, but uh, when, you're looking at, when, you're look, when you're looking at a spruce tree today in German, let's say in Europe, and say, I'm going to paint this spruce tree. And I'm doing it partly out of respect for Altdorfer, who lived 400, 500 years before. But there's the spruce tree, and it means something different to us than it did 500 years ago. I would suggest for the people, anyone who is listening and thinking, is we talk, there are several strands here the world of nature itself and paying attention to it. What does that mean in 2020? Number two, what is the role of the artist, whether that's a painter or a photographer, a poet, a filmmaker? And number three, and this is big, what does it mean for human beings to have perception? What is perception in, that, in the way that Merleau-Ponty talked about in Phenomenology of Perception, which is a hard book to read, I know. But we do have a central, right now, everybody's thinking about nature created this virus unless it was made unnaturally in the, in the lab, which makes it more of a horror movie topic. Uh, and yet we're thinking about being alive in a world in which nature natures, natura naturans. Those are all wonderful subjects for people to think about and meditate on and research and act politically on and make art. So it's not difficult to see how I ended up being a painter after listening to my dad speak, probably. And we're getting a little bit off course here, but we do wander about on the painting podcast from time to time. And a little bit more, just getting back into Altdorfer himself as a painter and what he contributed. When we think of him, the one-sentence explanation of Altdorfer is that he was the father of landscape painting. And ever since antiquity, you'd have some, you know, paintings that were done on walls, ancient Greek paintings of seascapes and landscapes. But since antiquity, the landscape itself as a, a subject wasn't something that painters really painted. So when we think about Altdorfer, and especially his early works, which are my favorite works of his, he's focusing exclusively on the landscape itself without any humans present. Now, later on, Altdorfer would live in Regensburg. He'd become a citizen there in 1505, and he'd continue to live in this town for the rest of his life in the Danube Valley. Now, I don't want people to get the image 
of Altdorfer being some sort of roving hippie in the landscape, making paintings like Cezanne or something like that, he was far from this type of a character. He became an architect in the city. He became essentially a politician. And this is important to think about what painters, what paintings and painters meant back then. And it was part of the reason why I was talking to my dad about Christianity and the power shifts and all these sort of things. Because Altdorfer, in that capacity, in his role as a politician, essentially in that city, ended up destroying a synagogue and actually painting a painting of Mary and for that synagogue itself. So there was this extreme power struggle that was happening at the time as well. He was actually tasked with making um, the enforcements against Turkish invasions as well, uh, fortifications, fortifying the city. So when you think about an, an, a painter and what we think about painters now, because the Impressionists and Vincent van Gogh made painters into being these crazy people on the outside of society who are loners wandering around the landscape. But back then, a painter was a really important cultural figure and somebody who would create culture for the entire community. So in this regard, of course, we always have rebellious painters. That's part of the nature of painting and being in that position. You can paint how you want. But can you, really? Right? So Altdorfer was this amazing landscape painter who had made some of the first landscape paintings that we've ever seen that were devoted solely to the landscape in oil, of course. But he was also a politician. He was also a high-respected member of the community. He got to go on a, a boat trip down to see the Alps when he was younger, and he made some paintings on that trip as well. But this was something, you know, if, if you were poor, you couldn't go on a boat trip back then. And even thinking about what would a boat trip be like in 1500, going to the, see the Alps, what would you bring with you? How would you prepare? You know, now we think about, oh, I've got my boarding passes and all this sort of stuff. But back then, I'm sure he had all sorts of um, people helping him on this trip Again, he was a, a person of high society. The idea of the starving, lonely artist does not apply to Altdorfer. And Altdorfer could be a pretty good poster child for the saying that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because his actions later in life surely are not commendable in any way. And this really gets to the core of painting and what it means to just look at paintings. Once you dig under the surface just a little bit of any painting, you find that all of culture is revealed. A little time capsule from that time is still hanging on the wall in museums all over the world and homes all over the world. And people take care of paintings for some reason these pieces of fabric, squares that we put on our walls, people take care of them. No matter who they are, they're kind of viewed as maybe that's worth money, right? 
But why is it worth money? It's because they're little time capsules looking back into history. And the time capsules I like looking at of Altdorfer's work are his landscape paintings. That's where I think he's best. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Painting Podcast. If you haven't done already, go over to Instagram and follow us on Instagram. We're Painting Course there. And you can see a lot of the images that were talked about during this episode. And also, if you could, it'd be awesome. Go to patreon.com backslash painting course and become a patron. And for $10 a month, I'll send you one hand-drawn postcard every month. And for $15 a month, you get a hand-painted postcard every month from me as well. So do that. Support me so I can keep making these things if you enjoy my content. Until next time, goodbye.